Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ruth as we continue. Ruth is in the Old Testament. Joshua judges the book of Ruth. Chapter 2, as we work our way through our summer series on the book of Ruth, a story of redemption, a love story. The title of today is A Chance Encounter, A Chance Encounter. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of Ruth chapter 2. And again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you need one, let me know. I'd love to give one to you. You can also follow along. I know many of your phones and your iPads and so on and so forth. One of the most famous songs, by the way, is anyone here that was born in the 80s, lived through the 80s? Because some of this stuff might just go over your head, but there was once a famous song in 1984. It was called Holding Out for a Hero, or no more widely known as I Need a Hero. It was sung by Bonnie Tyler. And in this song, she asked the question, where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods, small g? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? I need a hero. I'm holding on for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be sure he's got to be larger than life. Anyone remember that song? Oh, my goodness. There's a few of you. Oh, my goodness. I feel older. It's just funny. I was just holding my grandson here, and I was trying to calm him down as we're singing. And he starts looking at me. He says, boy, you're old, Bob, as he starts rubbing my face. I, now I even feel older. But I believe what makes this song so popular, at least in that day, was that it expresses a sentiment that most of us are questioning or desiring a hero. We want a hero. We want someone that's larger than life. We're drawn to people that are charismatic and larger than life, people who, who have it all together, that have the answers. Most of our population, our, our population's media and our entertainment uh, come from books and movies that are about heroes, from Ivanhoe to Buck Rogers to Lone Ranger. I was trying to include Dave Vogt's age in this group here. Our imaginations are intrigued with the idea of men and women coming to the rescue. Before the advent of anti-heroes like Dirty Harry or John Wick and Deadpool, you could tell who was the hero by the color of his clothes and the hair from the black hat and the white hat and so on and so forth. But it's not just our entertainment that we yearn for heroes. We're looking for them in our politicians, in our leaders, and social media influencers. We hunger for someone to make right all that went wrong, to rescue us from our trials and from our suffering and to restore us. Of course, we know that Jesus is the only true hero. And this is exactly what he's come to do. Now, last week, as we read the, uh, uh, Ruth last week, we read of her courage as she decides to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem, knowing that her prospects would be few to non-existent as a pagan foreign woman. We learned of God extending his kindness towards Israel and remembering his covenant with them through by ending the famine. His kindness, God's kindness in Naomi and Ruth's grief and Ruth's loyalty and the conversion of Ruth. We also saw the, saw the kindness of Ruth as she remains loyal to her mother-in-law. 
As we come to today's passage, the author introduces the hero of the story, Boaz. The question as we come to chapter 2 is, what is going to happen to Naomi and Ruth? How will they provide for and sustain themselves? How can two women destitute with no husbands, no income, and no prospects overcome the situation that they found themselves in? Yet as we see, God always has a plan to provide for his children as redemption plan progresses here in the book of Ruth. So in Ruth, Ruth chapter 2, we're going to read the first three verses together. It'll be here on the monitor, then the rest will be in your word. We read, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the son or who was of the clan of Elimelech. Father, as we consider this close encounter, we know that this love story has an end result in the fact that redemption plan is continuing eventually ending with Jesus Christ, the former, the, the, the one who will become the descendant of Boaz and Ruth. Father, I pray that as we consider this book three to 4,000 years old, that we again consider and apply it, what it means to our lives, and then apply it to how that we are to live today. Thank you for this little book. I pray that we be diligent in reading, Father, and interpreting through the Holy Spirit and applying what you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, the author now moves the setting of the story to the house where the two women are staying. Remember, it started in Bethlehem, then moved to, to Moab, and then moving back to Bethlehem. Now we find we're in the house that they've settled in. We're not sure why they're staying there, who they're staying there, how they're paying for it. But all we know that they're in a house, and it's near the barley fields in Bethlehem. This chapter here includes five set of dialogues between the characters. And we're going to look at the first three dialogues uh, this week. The first dialogue takes place in the house where they are staying. Nothing is said of where the house is or how they can afford it. We're just taking it. Here they are. They're in their house. And facing the grim fact that they need sustenance, they need food, they have no money, they have no job, no, no prospects here, they Ruth volunteers to go out into the fields and collect grain that was left behind by the reapers. The narrator informs us that by chance, Ruth strays onto the fields of a man named Boaz, who just happens to be a relative of her former deceased father-in-law. The second dialogue, we just read the first dialogue. The second dialogue takes place in verse 4 in the fields as Boaz now enters the scene. So all we see, she, she says, I'm going to take the initiative. We got to go out and do something. So I will just go out and I will just collect what I can so that we may eat. And by chance, she winds up in Boaz's fields. And look at verse four. And behold, Boaz comes from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, uh, young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose woman is this? In some way he noticed her. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short 
rest. Very quickly, we see that Boaz is a kind, friendly man as he greets his workers. Most of them probably were day workers. He notices a woman he didn't recognize working, and he wonders, who is she? There must have been something about her that set her apart from everyone else. His foreman recaps her story and her request to work. She's just looking to work. He points out that she is a very hard worker, only taking a short break while working throughout that day, through that hard day out in the sun. So then we come to the third dialogue that starts in verse 8, as Boaz approaches her and encourages her. Then Boaz, in verse 8, said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but, but, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's looking for her safety. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, this in itself is, is, is a great blessing in the fact that typically women were the ones who drew water for everyone else, and they would drink everywhere. She, would, she didn't have to go find her own water. She goes on to say, then why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. In verse 11, but Boaz answered, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward will be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is a powerful scene. And in this scene, Boaz shows kindness and concern for Ruth. It seems that he knows her background, at least a little bit of who she is, where she came from, and the circumstances that surround why she is there. His kindness is demonstrated by insistence that she only work in his fields, allowing her to work with his female workers so she has companionship and protection and to drink from their water source. She didn't have to go find it. She didn't have to serve someone else. He shows his concern by instructing his men to treat her with respect and provide what she needs. What we're seeing here, remember, this is a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And a young woman, especially a single young woman, would have been at the, the mercy of some men that would find nothing more pleasure than to attack her. And so he says, stay with my young men. They will protect you. He's showing his kindness. He's showing her mercy and grace. Now, what's interesting and always wonderful about Ruth is that she responds with humility and surprise at his kindness. Most likely, she did not expect much favor from the locals since she was from Moab. Remember, Moab was one of Israel's bitter enemies and a constant thorn in their side. Part of the reason the famine could have been when Elgon, the king of Moab, had invaded Israel for 18 years. So Moab would not have been looked at with much favor. And someone from Moab would not have been considered friendly. The scene ends with Boaz pronouncing a blessing on her that God will reward her kindness towards Naomi as well as her newfound faith in Yahweh. She responds with heart great gratitude for his kindness and grace. So that says Boaz and Ruth has this chance encounter as we see here 
in the fields. We see these things, these observations, is that we see a kindness, we see a humbleness on both parts. Now, as we come and consider what does this passage mean? What is it that we're trying to learn from this passage? There's several things I want us to consider in this passage. The scene is one that's undergirded, as we said before, is in the book of Ruth. You're going to see the sovereignty of God as well as human responsibility or human choices. And we need to recognize that even though there is tension in our minds of those two things, God is clearly showing how both of those things work together in his plan. We see that God is displaying his kindness, his mercy, and his grace to his children in, this theme, in these themes, in these scenes that we're reading. Now, what I want to do is look at the instances of God's kindness, grace, and mercy. So the first instance of God's kindness is the practice of gleaning. That's not a term that you and I might have heard, but it's not a practice that we see here in the States. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19, if you would. If you're in Ruth, just go back a few books. You'll go back past Judges, past Joshua, Deuteronomy. You'll find yourself in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is where most daily Bible plan readings for the year die. Here we read of Nuth. Ruth is taking initiative to go out in the fields to gather up barley. Notice that she is not a hired hand or seeking employment, only taking the opportunity to take that which is dropped or missed by the regular workers. She is not someone who's hired. She's just out there uninvited, just grabbing things that fall down. This was called gleaning. Gleanings were stalks of grain that remained after the first cutting and were, left, were to be left for travelers, fatherless, the widows, and the poor. God had commanded Israel before entering the promised land in Leviticus chapter nine or 19. Look at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not reap your field right to the edges, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. So in other words, don't go all the way to the edges, and if you miss some ears of corn or something, don't go back and grab them. Just leave them where you are. Why? Because he says, you shall leave them for the poor and the sojourneth, for the traveler. I am the Lord your God. Hence he's saying, I am Yahweh. This is my command. Leave this for those that are going to be in need. So Ruth is taking advantage of this in some way. Well, she knew of this practice. And so God had given this practice for the kindness of those who were not able to work in those days. Yahweh, he reminds them of this command 40 years later in Deuteronomy chapter 24, adding that the purpose of this practice was to serve as a reminder to the Israelites that once you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. So even as we look at what she's doing, getting up early, taking the initiative, she is uh, doing that which God is showing his kindness to people just like her, taking care of those who could not take care of themselves. Destitute and without any prospects, Ruth resolves in her heart to head to the fields to take advantage of the kindness of God towards the poor. Now, the second instance of God's kindness is in the presence of Boaz. So it's not only just the practice of cleaning, but it's in the very presence of Boaz. We're not introduced to the other person, or I'm sorry, we are now introduced to the other person in this love story. 
the man who will become Ruth's husband and redeemer. His appearance is like the entrance of a knight in shining armor, so to speak. He's a lone ranger arriving on his horse Silver or Spider-Man swooping down to the rescue. The story begins to shift from all that has gone wrong in Naomi and Ruth's life to hope as the Redeemer comes upon the scene, Boaz. I don't know, maybe there was a light and there was a shining type of thing behind him. I don't know. But here we are introduced to Boaz. Not, known, not much is known about this man other than the name of his parents and his role as the great-grandfather of the future king, David. But we do, what we do see here is enough to know that this man is very unlike his contemporaries of the time. And this is what's so important. His name, Boaz, means in him is strength. This is a man that is living out what he has been called, just as Ruth's name means friendship, and she's living that out. This narrator catches our attention by noting in verse 1, and I don't know if you saw that, is that he was a worthy man. Did you see that? And Boaz, a worthy man. And he was a relative of Naomi's husband. Now, the phrase worthy man in Hebrews captures the image of a man who was strong, who was brave, wealthy, and powerful. It captures a whole host of things. One interesting tidbit is that Boaz, and I don't know if you know this, was actually the son of Rahab in the book of Joshua. You might recall that she was the woman that ran a house of prostitution in Jericho. She ran a tavern that was, uh, but who was kind to the Hebrew spies. She had hid them, remember, up on her roof and helped them escape detection from the authorities with a request to be spared her and her family. <coughs> Not only did Joshua honor that agreement, but allowed her to marry one of the Hebrew men. This could be the one reason that Boaz was so kind to a foreigner, to a foreman pagan worship as his mother once was. In reality, Boaz himself is only half Hebrew. But in that, he's the son of another Gentile woman who finds herself in the lineage of Christ. Boaz demonstrates kindness towards Ruth by providing work, water, and protection. In doing so, he is showing integrity and protection for the vulnerable and compassion for the poor. He is a man that models the desire of God in Micah 6.8. As you see here in this meme, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Boaz was a worthy man. In him was strength. In him was the kindness that God had called him to share with others. <clears throat> Boaz had heard of Naomi's plight. He heard of her return and Ruth's friendship and loyalty to Naomi. In return, he offers refreshment, he honors her faith, her decision to follow Yahweh, and he speaks kindly to her. And as if you notice at the end, he prays for her and asks for God's blessings upon her. He exhibits kindness not only to Ruth, but also, as you can see, in his interaction with workers. What is surprising about this is we learn that the majority of the Israelites in that day were doing what was right in their own eyes. But Boaz is a man who stands above that. Instead of doing what is right in his eyes, he is doing right in what is, what is right in God's eyes. He was a man who was kind not only to his workers, but we see the relationship to him and the Lord to bless you. 
The third instance of God's kindness, grace, and mercy is demonstrating the provision of God in connecting these two. So as we see, we see a woman from Moab and Boaz, a worthy man, and then Ruth, a foot. All of a sudden, we see here coming into the scene on this field, this chance encounter of these two people. And it's important for these two people to be together because it's part of God's redemption plan. The narrator comments that as Ruth went out into the fields, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, she was not looking for Boaz's fields. All we see in verse, uh, the first part of this verse is that Boaz was a relative. But as we go into verse 2, she's just going to someone's field. She just wants to find a place where someone has some sloppy reapers and she can pick up as much uh, of barley as she can after they walk away. But she happens here on it. Now, again, as you and I read this <clears throat> to the world, they may seem that this is a chance encounter. It's good fortune, or we might put it today as a stroke of luck that they just happened to be in the same field together, and he noticed her and went and talked to her. She didn't intend to go to his fields. He was not intending that day to go find Ruth. But what we see is a chance encounter. And it seems that this time she was not even aware of who he was or what the relationship he was to Naomi and to herself. However, as you and I know, there are no chance encounters. There are no accidents or random events. As we learned two weeks ago regarding the purposeful sovereignty of God, I want to bring your attention once again to this from John Piper, this quote. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. And what is that? It's the reconciliation, right? It's the consummation. It's redemption of his children. He will be successful. But look at the second part. God's providence, here's what's underlined, carries his plan into action, guides all things towards its ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. So the narrator, the author here, may say that it is a chance encounter or it just happened, but you and I know better. This here is a divine appointment where two people from two different cultures, from two different parts of the world, are coming together to fulfill God's plan. It may not be clear to these two clueless, soon-to-be-wedded couples as it is today. We get the gift of hindsight. But God's redemption plan is right on schedule. As you and I read the, you know, the, the, the Genesis, and then all of a sudden we come into uh, Exodus, and we say, what's going on? What happened to all the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And then all of a sudden, 400 years of slavery. But then we read of God's deliverance, and then we read of, of all the things that are happening, like what in the world is going on? And then we read of Joshua and all the victories, but then you come to Judges. It's like, man, is God's plan ever going to come to fruition? Is, any the, is the promise of Genesis 3.15 that there will be a seed of the woman who will come and destroy the seed of, of Satan? What is going to happen here? But right here in this short little book, we see that God's plan is happening right on time. Both Boaz and Ruth are integral to the redemption plan as they will become the ancestors of King David and eventually Jesus Christ himself. 
what is shocking to the original readers of this love story is that Yahweh would include a foreign, former pagan worshiper in this wonderful plan of God to redeem and reconcile his own children. Were there not enough Hebrew women in Bethlehem or around the area for Boaz to marry and continue? Why in the world would he create such calamity in the fact of a famine to, to run Naomi and her family to Moab and then for, Moab, or then for Naomi's sons to marry foreign women, which was against God's command, but then to have those two die and then for her to come back? That seems like, why is God going through all of this to put these two people together? You and I would probably write a love story that's a little bit different. But this here, we see the hand of God. God demonstrating his purposeful sovereignty. This goes to show us that even in calamities and tragedies, God is working for his glory, amen, and for our good. Ruth is just trying to feed her and Naomi. She is not looking for love. She is not looking for a husband. That's probably far from her mind. She is just looking to survive day by day. Boaz is just being Boaz, just a worthy man. He's unaware that God will bring what God will bring about. He's just greeting everyone and being kind and being that type of man. They do not know the great plan of the Trinity. They have not been informed. They have not been included in the counsels of God. They're just going about their daily work. Soon we will all discover how the judgment of God in bringing the famine and then the disobedient choice of Elimelech will serve the purpose of full sovereignty of God. You know, and I find this out, the, the, not the hard way, but he's done this in my family as well. As many of you know, we're from Illinois and what, I, 2001, I can't even do the math anymore. It's so 22 years ago, God brought us here to California to another church. Spent four years there and then God brought us here to Orange Villa 18 years ago or so. And when we came, my children were young. Brandon, how old were you? Was seventh grade or you were 13? Uh, Emily, how old were you? Eight, and uh, I do have a third child, Jacob. I don't. How old was Jacob when he was here? He would have been ten. <laughs> I can't do the math. But it was so interesting as we we brought our, our we came here. We came because, to be honest, we we had to get out of the, the church we were in was struggling. We were poor. We were in debt. And we were in a very very small church, smaller than this, and in a very depressed area. And so my mind was, hey, a, a pastor in Virginia called me in Illinois and said, there's a church in California that's looking for a youth pastor. God worked everything out. Next thing you know, we're flying and we're moving here to California. Left everything. I mean, they said, don't bring anything. Uh, we'll supply you when you get here. And the church did. They just, wonderful church, loved us. Uh, people just cared for us, filled up, helped us find a place to live, helped us find furniture and all those types of things. And the kids were like, some excited, uh, some were not as excited about moving all the way here. But you know, God set us up. But as we're coming here, we're coming for different reasons, right? But I realized something as Brandon and Paige got married, they got married here, and then Jacob and Lorenda got married. And it just struck me at Jacob's wedding is that the real reason God brought my family to California is because my two boys, their wives were here in California. They weren't going to meet in Illinois. They were here. 
And that's so important for us to understand. That's not why I moved to California. I remember when I was young and I was going to go to college, and instead of going to college, it was my senior year, I bought a motorcycle instead. So I always said to myself, and I used to teach the kids when I got into youth ministry, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. God has someone for you. In other words, there's not one person. If I would have went to Pensacola, Florida, I would have met someone there probably in college and got married like all my friends did. However, I didn't stay in Illinois in Rockford at that time because I bought a motorcycle. I didn't go to college because I was, well, I was lazy, that as well, but because that's where I met Dawn, my wife, so that we could have these children, so I could have those grandchildren. See, that's how God's sovereignty works. We try to push the will of God, but God is doing his will in spite of us. And so that's one of the things that I want us to realize is that you say, you know, I used to tell people, I finally came to the point where I had to tell the kids, listen, God has one person for you to marry. If Psalms, um, oh, shoot, I forgot the passage. Okay, Psalms, I forgot the passage offhand. But if scripture is correct, there's one mate for you, and he'll put you together. Because he has already planned what children you're going to have, so on and so forth. So other times, there's things in which we sweat so much on trying to find the counsel of God that we miss what God is trying to do in our lives right there and then at the moment. Those two people walking in the field that day had no idea that they would eventually give birth through their, descend through their descendants, the son of God, the seed, the prince who will slay the dragon and win the girl. They had no idea. They were just trying to make ends meet. Boaz was just trying to get things done. But in this love story, we see that God is bringing all things together for his glory and our good. So it's a wonderful story. Don't you agree? This is a great love story. There's so much here to encourage and instruct us in our own lives in trusting God's kindness mercy and grace. And so here's where I want us to come to as we come to close in this here in a moment is that you and I need to trust in the kindness, in the mercy and the grace of a great sovereign God. Let me give you a quick rundown of how you and I should respond to this passage. First, let's commit to showing kindness to others as God has shown us his kindness. We need to be men and women that are worthy, that are loyal. Scripture calls us to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness. Galatians says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And as just as Boaz and Ruth expressed kindness, so should we. Not only do we imitate them, but we also imitate Christ. As Paul writes, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, you and I are to show kindness despite the circumstances and the consequences that may come to us as we walk in faith. You never know who may need a kind word. We've said things of this in the nature. You never know if your demonstration of kindness may be exactly what that person needs at that moment. We are to be men and women of kindness. As Boaz, not only to his employers, but back to him. Back to those that he does not know, a stranger. 
Number two, let's commit to being men and women of godly integrity. Tony Moretta writes that today we need models of genuine godliness. There's a lack of it today. Ruth inspires us to be loyal, sincere, gracious, courageous, and devoted. Boaz gives us a model of manhood, a justice-pursuing and not passive. He's compassionate, but not abusive. He also reminds us that Boaz is a model of justice and grace and serves as a picture of Christ. Ruth took the initiative. She worked hard and was humble and appreciative. And here's why I want to take just a moment. Men, ladies, we need Boaz's and Ruth's today. We need to be men that are worthy. We need women who are loyal and ready to give friendship, that are hard workers, that are ready to take the initiative. Parents and singles that are here this morning, I would say you need to trust God and take the initiative in just working and living now for God. Many times we're thinking, well, you know, especially a single person, well, you know, once I get married and have children, then I'll get back and I'll find out what God's will for me. Let me tell you, if you are single today, God wants you to take the initiative like Ruth and like Boaz. Just do what you're doing now, trusting that God will put you together with your mate, with those that he's going to entrust you to and entrust to you. You and I need to be men and women who trust in that. And parents, we need to be parents who are, who are trusting God with our children, recognizing that God has just caused, called us to raise them up, trusting that God will protect them. Men, you need to pray that you will be a Boaz. Our church, our community, our world needs more Boaz. What's unfortunate is when you and I look at the politicians, those who run for office, those who seek leadership, those who are people are looking for influence, they are not worthy men. We need to reject that. We need to be men that are worthy. We need the men that will stand up and do what God has called us to do, despite if the world is doing what's right in their own eyes. We need to be strong. We need to be compassionate. We need to protect the vulnerable. We need to, to display the kindness of God. We need to be men that are praying, a worthy man. We need to pray that God will give us our Ruth, the one that he has uh, directed us to, the one he has assigned us to. Women, pray that you will be a Ruth, that you're demonstrating the friendship, the loyalty, the kindness the humility. Then God will bring your Boaz and the Ruth together. We need men and women that are both Boazes and Ruths. Number three, let's commit to trusting the purposeful sovereignty of God as our refuge. Boaz's prayer for Ruth is a simple and powerful. He prays, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is a wonderful picture of God's protection, provision, and purpose for his children. King David sings in Psalms, you'll see it here. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. 
He then cries out, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Do you take refuge in the sovereignty of God? Knowing that your life is playing out as he has designed. And Romans tells us that all things work to good to those who are called by his name. Submit yourself to him is what he's called us to do. However, many times we're so worried about all these other things. Doubting the goodness of God. Doubting the love of God and doubting his word when things don't happen in our time frame. Scripture goes on to inform us that God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. And that he rewards those who seek him. My friends, do not fear. No matter what circumstances you are undergoing, no matter what the consequences you are enduring in your life, God is here. He is working all things for his glory and our good. So as we live our lives, let's live out the commands of God and demonstrating the kindness of Boaz, the initiative of Ruth, that God may be glorified in our lives. I'd like to close with Psalms 57, the first three verses. It says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge to the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God, most high to God, who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send me from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Many of you can give testimony to that. And I pray that if there's any here that is struggling with the sovereignty of God in your life, that you may see his goodness and his blessings as he calls you to draw him to draw you to himself. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up this time and Randy for our prayer as we close. But I want you to just take a moment to pause and consider the words here in Ruth. It is a love story, but it's a love story with much meaning for us this morning as we interpret it, as we understand it and apply it to our lives. I pray in whatever way that the Holy Spirit We have free reign that you would give him the power and respond to how he's calling you this morning. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.